welcome to COG, where we discuss topical issues in women's health. This week's conversation in obstetrics and gynaecology focuses on the primary caesarean delivery rate. In 1985, the WHO made the bold statement that there is no justification for any region to have a higher caesarean section rate than 10 to 15%. It's a bold position which the WHO has maintained and certainly worth discussing. We'll talk with Professor Aaron Corhey about the safe reduction of caesarean delivery and examine several publications along that theme in Journal Club. My name is Rachel Nugent and as always I'm joined by Associate Professor Ted Weaver. Thanks for joining me Ted. Hi Rachel, good to be here as usual. So today we're talking about the primary caesarean delivery rate and this is an issue that's been flagged by the WHO as a major issue in women's health. Uh, We're going to approach it from several angles, so we'll discuss the medical issues around caesarean delivery, as well as the health economics and the way litigation contributes to the caesarean delivery rate, which affects all of us in the way we practice. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think when the the WHO back in the, um, I think, early 90s said that an ideal caesarean section rate was was about 15%, and that figure's been much quoted uh, and misquoted around the world. And I think what the basis of the WHO 15% was, was that it was a figure that was um, the numbers of caesarean sections that, are, that a resource poorer country might have to do to give them a perinatal mortality rate that would, and maternal morbidity and mortality rate that would be comparable to that of a, of a developed country. So I can remember when the caesarean section rate went through the 20% mark, and that was considered too high. And now we have rates approaching 30%. And it's interesting to speculate when we might reach a tipping point in this when, when, from a health economic perspective, when we just physically can't do any more caesarean sections because we haven't got the theatre time that's going to be available to do them. It also raises an equity um, issue as well for me because, you know, why, what if we're in theatre doing an elective caesar for a woman where potentially the indication to do it may not be too strong and then we can't get into theatre because you've got a woman who's had a placental abruption where she needs to have a Category 1 Caesar, but the theatre's full uh, doing a, a Caesar that, that's less urgent. So then we might run into all sorts of hospital access problems and so on. So I think this is, is well deserving of our discussion. And certainly over 30 years in obstetrics, it's been something that's been talked about and talked about and talked about without anybody really um, reaching any... Um, reasonable solution. We'll have obstetricians on the one hand citing that a high rate's good and we have midwives on the other hand citing that, that the rates are too high and that if only it was left to them the rates would be lower. I don't think that certainly stood stood any reasonable test. I think that's probably wrong. Our urogynecological um, colleagues citing increased rates of prolapse and uh, stress incontinence among Paris women who've had vaginal births. An- another complicating factor. Plus we're getting the the as we've often talked about in these podcasts, the, the different cohort of women that we have to care for now, the, the obese and morbidly obese, the, the ageing woman who has perhaps passed her reproductive prime, lots of factors that are perhaps different from what they were 20 years ago when WHO first published their magic number of 15%. So I think it is worthwhile having a look at. Um, there, you can look at it from a number of perspectives. And as I say... I, I think that it's important to consider it from a number of perspectives. Firstly, and most importantly, the perspective of the of the woman and her baby, and also the, the the views of different craft groups who might be involved in maternity care. And finally, the health economic perspective. And I was very interested to listen to the interview that you did with Aaron Corhey in Auckland, getting his view about this. Yeah, look, Aaron is one of my heroes. He. Uh has done lots and lots of research in lots of different areas in obstetrics. He's an MFM, he's done a master's in public health and health policy, and he has also done a PhD in health economics. So uh, all really important things to think about when we're caring for women. And he was one of the authors of the American College of ONG statement around safe prevention of primary caesarean delivery, which was released a few years ago, which I will put a link to on the Podbean page. But I read with great interest when it was released, and it certainly changed the way that I managed my birth suite. And I think uh, the suggestions in that guideline are sound. 
Let's talk to Aaron Corhey, the Professor and Chair of Obstetrics and Gynaecology and Associate Dean for Women's Health Research and Policy at the Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. He talked at the Ranscog Annual Scientific Meeting about the caesarean epidemic, ideologies, outcomes and potential solutions. Aaron was a very engaging speaker and I caught up with him during the lunch break. Thanks for joining us on COG, Aaron. Oh sure, my, my pleasure. You talked about the rising caesarean section rate and the rate in the US at the moment is about 30%, similar to the figure here in Australia. Do you think there's a number, a percentage of caesareans that we should be doing? Is there a magic number that we should be aiming for in terms of uh, caesarean delivery rate? Yeah, it's funny that uh, my department chair at the Brigham and Women's Hospital asked me that question in 1999. I mean, we really don't know what the magic number is, right? So you've got to look kind of across the data to get some insight about how we're doing. I would say that the World Health Organization had pointed us towards a number like 15% for a number of years, but the most recent data that kind of compares countries and outcomes um, was presented in, in a study that was published in JAMA in 2015. And in that study, it found that as cesarean delivery rates um, rise from 0 to 10%, then 10% to 20%, you can see the rate of maternal mortality fall and the rate of neonatal mortality fall. But at about 20%, there's no improvement in either maternal or neonatal mortality. So that would point you towards a rate of about 20% might be at least a, a benchmark to start with. Another way as an obstetrician I think of is I think, well, gosh, I don't really want other people that practice a craft that I'm working at to be any better at me than it. And what I've found is that generally the midwives at the hospitals at which I practice have lower C-section rates than the obstetricians. And their C-section rates um, are commonly in the single digits to low teens, so 8 to 15%. And so that always frustrates me, but I feel a little bit, um, you know, beaten when I'm my C-section rate's higher than someone else's. So I, yeah. So could it could it be as low as even 10 to 15 percent, perhaps? Um, because remember that 20 percent reflects all indications, whereas the midwifery rate reflects just in the labor indications. So I think that's probably a reasonable ballpark a place to start. So you talked a little bit about the rising caesarean rates and the factors behind that. I mean, obviously there's patient factors, demographic factors like increasing BMI uh, and maternal age. But you also talked about the medico-legal environment impacting on caesarean section rates. Can you explain a little more about that for me? Uh, certainly. Uh, you know, actually in the talk I gave this morning, um, I had cut it down pretty significantly to fit in the time. Um, and in the, the standard one I give that's a little bit longer, I talk about a study that we did where we, we actually surveyed um, about 1,500 clinicians in the U.S. And we asked them about whether they had been sued or whether they think about being sued. And then we gave them 10 clinical scenarios. And in the scenarios, they were either more likely or less likely to do a cesarean delivery. Well, we found that individuals who had been sued were more likely to pick higher cesarean you know, be more, we say, inclined, more inclined to do a cesarean delivery. We found that individuals that thought about being sued were more inclined uh, to uh, be towards cesarean delivery. And interestingly, uh, in, in our country, in the states, the, 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 the medical legal environments differ by state by state. And we found that actually wasn't a factor, um, but in individuals who knew what the status was in their state, that made them more inclined to do cesarean delivery. So it's something about an awareness of, of lawsuits of the medical and legal environment that inclines clinicians to be more, um, more inclined towards performing cesarean deliveries. So it is a, a defensive position for a lot of clinicians to do a cesarean to prevent lawsuits down the road. Yeah, that's right. So you also talked a little bit about changing our practice environment to uh, reduce primary cesarean section. H how can we do that? That's a great question. Um, one of the things that we did when I came to Oregon is the cesarean delivery rate, was it's a tertiary high-risk hospital, but it was about 34%. And I thought, gosh, if nationally we're below 34%, and I came from a hospital that was every bit as high-risk where it was 22%, I thought, there's got to be a way to reduce it. Um, and so what we started with was just weekly review of all the C-sections. So once a week, the nurses, the physicians would get together um, and just go through the C-sections of the week. 
why, what happened in this C-section? Why was this done? Oh, does anybody, you know, do you know about these data? Have you thought about this? Have you thought, tried that? And we found a rapid reduction in cesarean delivery over just a few months from, again, a benchmark of about 34% to a number of about 25% and that has been maintained over the last seven years. So I think that culture does matter. It matters that somebody says, hey, why are we doing all these cesarean deliveries and are, there re are they really indicated? And when you really you pin it down, you can actually drive them down, I think, pretty quickly. However, you're going to bump up against some number and where that number is, 20, 25, something like that. that yeah. That's harder to get past that point. Yeah. Um, so just with a simple audit practice, educational focus of talking through cases, that's, that's a pretty profound reduction. Yeah. Uh, how many deliveries a year would you do in your hospital? Oh, we do about 2,600. Yeah. So it's a medium-sized yeah, hospital. Yeah, medium-sized facility. Yeah. You mentioned, I loved when you mentioned incentivizing vaginal birth uh, for care providers. Now, part of your background is you've done a PhD in health economics and a lot of your work is in health economics. Um, do you think that making vaginal birth more expensive is a good health economic decision? Um, yeah, I do actually. I mean, I mean, to frame it as more expensive is, is tricky. It's not that I think that we should make healthcare more expensive, but I think that there's... So in the United States, for example, a lot of the payment, the professional payment to obstetricians is bundled. So basically, you're paid one fee for all of the prenatal care and all the care during labor and delivery. But we all know that if you do a bunch of prenatal care and then you and then the patient ends up being breached and you schedule their C-section do their C-section, that that's a lot easier than waiting for them to come into labor and delivery, take care of them through the labor course, and then deliver them vaginally, right? So the true costs of that, the true costs of that, are probably about the same as the scheduled cesarean delivery. And when I say true costs, I mean costs really refer to the actual resources that are utilized, right? And so there's the the resources that are utilized managing somewhere in labor and delivery, and then resources that are utilized postpartum, right? For a scheduled breach cesarean delivery, there's very little intrapartum use of resources, right? They come in, they get kind of intensively moved in the operating room, but it's only for an hour or something. But then they end up spending three, four days in the hospital afterward. For someone that's going to come in and labor and then deliver, you know, hopefully vaginally the majority of the time, they'll have only a, a shorter stay postpartum. You, it's going to be probably similar resources. So it's not so much that you're going to increase the overall costs, but that you might incentivize the providers of care to do um, something that would uh, lead to better outcomes, like more vaginal deliveries. Yeah, because a lot of the time, a cesarean delivery, if it's electively scheduled, is, is a more convenient delivery. It's certainly more convenient. Yeah easier to time for the provider for the patient mm. right it's a problem yeah absolutely um so you talked a little about interventions to decrease cesarean section rate so things like vaginal birth after caesar ecv um, labor dystocia disorders having patients in labor um, and in the second stage and the document you referenced was the safe prevention of the primary cesarean delivery and i really enjoyed that publication when it came out because essentially it said to me six is the new four. Um, do you think we need to become more more patient as obstetricians to help facilitate vaginal birth? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that there's obviously limits, um, but I, th I think that um, this historically with solo practice obstetrics, which was the, you know, the predominant way that obstetrics was provided in the States throughout the majority of the 20th century, you had enormous incentive to get births done and out of there, right? And then I think with the introduction of active management of labor, it was like, okay, here's a way to really shorten the length of labor. And so everybody became very impatient with labor. You know, and so if someone wasn't delivered in six to eight hours or about to deliver, it's like, well, what's going on here? Let's just get going. Furthermore, I think that there were data, particularly pre-continuous fetal monitoring, that you know, longer labors led to worse neonatal outcomes, so it made everybody nervous. And that combination led people to be, I think, incredibly impatient. I think the, the art of, a, of midwifery, actually, is that patience factor, that they just are willing to kind of be patient and support women through, you know, tough, painful labors and that sort of thing to achieve vaginal delivery. And so I do think this patience factor does matter. Yeah, and so do you think there's different cohorts of, of patients then? So uh, part of your work looks at obesity in pregnancy, and certainly we know that um, 
women who are obese have a longer latent phase. Um, there's often adipose in between their myometrial cells decreases contractility. Do you think that uh, in obese women, for example, we need to be even more patient to get them to the point of vaginal birth uh, than with normal weight women? Yeah, I think so. It's it's an even more anxiety-provoking situation, obviously. Um, our ability to estimate fetal weight at baseline is poor, but in somebody who's obese where you can't even feel the fundus, I think we're always very afraid. And we know that obese women have higher rates of macrosomia, LGA babies, and so we're even more anxious about an impending shoulder dystocia. That being said, the the downstream morbidity mortality from a, a morbidly obese woman from a cesarean delivery is much higher than the non-obese population. Um, and the subsequent, you know, repeat, three-peat cesarean deliveries in that population are ever more challenging. So achieving a vaginal delivery in that population has even more health benefits. Thus, yes, I think we should be patient in uh, morbidly obese women just like with with, uh, with non-obese women. And it, what, what I think that all this patience really calls for is us to be really, as clinicians, at the bedside assessing labor um, in an ongoing fashion to become the clinicians that, a little bit, that we were trained by, you know, a generation mm. or two below, that, was, that were very good with fetal position and station and pelvimetry, that sort of thing, which I think fell out of fashion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and those uh, older clinicians, when you work with them, have a really good understanding of, of palpation and their clinical skills um, compared to those of us who've been raised in an ultrasound generation where uh, there's always a, a scan on birth suite. A scanner on birth suite. Yeah, that's right. Um, so one of the other uh, interesting points you made was about the use of manual rotation in the second stage. So I'd just like to get your take on that uh, a little bit. What uh, you, you mentioned that it improves vaginal birth rates. Um, what's the optimal time to, to do a manual rotation? It's a great question. You know, we actually did a randomized trial that hasn't been published yet. Um, to look at early rotation versus later rotation. Early rotation being within the first 30 minutes of the second stage in someone who's OT or OP versus waiting for, until they're basically exhausted and rotating then. Um, we found that if you did an early rotation, it shortened the second stage, but the study was a small study and didn't find a difference in, in the rate of, of mode of delivery. My personal inclination is that it probably isn't early, that meaning the first 30 minutes, it's probably like a little later than early. So it's probably like 30 to 60 minutes. In other words, let someone push for 30 minutes. During those first 30 minutes, I would say a, a significant proportion, particularly of the OTs, will rotate on their own. Mm. If they rotate on their own, then you, haven't, you don't need to do a procedure, mm. then you're great. But I think if you're in at 30 minutes, particularly up to an hour, and there's really been no change in position, they're not going to change. Right? Someone who's pushed for an hour and that fetus is still a direct OP or ROT, they're, they're not likely going to rotate then. Mm. So then is, I think, a really good time to intervene before three or four hours go by, which is commonly when I'm called. You know, oh, she's been pushing for three to four hours, and uh, we were wondering if you could assess for operative action delivery. And it's like, okay, we can do that. We can pull them out OP. We can rotate them then and pull them. But wouldn't it have been nice if we had rotated her two hours earlier, and now she's not exhausted and she can push the baby out on her own? Yeah, which is always uh, preferred than using an instrument. Yeah. So there was a large retrospective cohort uh, published in the British Journal of ONG last month which suggested reduced neonatal morbidity for mid-cavity deliveries if those babies were born by a caesarean section rather than by an instrument. How do you think this kind of information sits within the framework of, of reducing primary cesarean delivery rates? Well, I mean, in our country, I mean, mid-cavity delivery is, is such a rare event. Um, we, I, I think I, I'm one of two obstetricians in my hospital out of about 40 that would even consider doing mid-pelvic deliveries. And, and that's usually for me only in more of an emergent setting rather than, than you know, some, someone who's pushed for four hours. So it's been predominantly abandoned in the United States. And I think... Um, so you're, you're losing skills on one hand. On the other hand, it does appear that there might be um, harms from dragging kids out from too high of a station. Mm. Um, I don't know that I think that that's going to be, you know, did that, that definitely contributed to the rise of cesarean delivery in the late 70s and early 80s, right, when we, we did away with kind of high force of delivery. I think the mid-pelvic delivery is still something to consider, but 
you know, I think that there's certainly more higher risks associated, much as that study demonstrated, um, and other studies ha have done so as well. Um, you know, certainly I think the risk of shoulder associates increased and, and, and other birth trauma. Yeah. The U.S. has been really proactive in curtailing inductions for non-medical indications. Do you think there's a gestation where a non-medical, uh, a non-medically uh, indicated induction of labor is okay, essentially an elective induction? Well, it's interesting about that word elective. Um, I think many individuals will consider an induction of labor at 42 weeks not elective induction, but indicated for prolonged or post-term post pregnancy. I think that the evidence actually would turn at 41 weeks, that at 41 weeks, actually, the preponderance of the evidence would suggest that there's both neonatal benefit as well as a reduction in the risk of cesarean delivery, such that at 41 weeks gestational age, there really is no reason to not induce somebody. The downside is the costs, right? So an induction of labor in someone with an unfavorable cervix at 41 weeks can be a two to three day in hospital stay, just trying to get them to go into labor. And so we really probably need better outpatient approaches to cervical ripening and even the early, early part of induction of labor that we don't seem to have at this point. The question at 39 or 40 weeks gestational age is going to be answered, I think, this coming year with the, the ARRIVE trial, which is a, a maternal fetal medicine units trial in the States that has completed enrollment and I believe will be probably presented some, at some point this winter. Um, we're waiting to see. And um, it's a little bit scary because if their primary outcome was, was actually neonatal outcomes. And from my reading of the data and some of the studies that we've done, I wouldn't be surprised if you induce women routinely at 39 to 40 weeks gestational age if you would have a reduction in neonatal morbidity. Um, the question is, what's going to happen to C-sections? And if in that study they have no difference or even a small reduction in cesarean delivery, I'm not sure how what we can say to women, because mm. that then the evidence would suggest we should induce them all 39 weeks. Well, no one would be able to do that. There's no The labor units would never be able to hold all the women at 39 weeks gestation. Mm and there's enormous cost to it as well. So I'm a little bit anxious about that study. I think, it, um, and, it, and, I, and, I, and I kind of feel like it's a little bit my fault since I talked to the lead author of that is a guy named Bill Grobman, and Bill and I had these conversations seven, eight years ago about the impact of induction of labor, and so I feel a bit guilty about the whole thing. Well, that's certainly very exciting because my take on that literature also is that between 39 and 40 weeks, it, it doesn't seem to be problematic for, for babies and, and from what I understand, from, for mothers either. Um, and I wonder if, you know, you, saw, you talked about the HANA trial in your talk, which was the initial trial that showed us we should be inducing women at 42 weeks. Um, and so that's when pregnancies started ending at 42 weeks. And I wonder with this evolving evidence if that... Yeah. That, I, that date's going to move I th back. I think you might be right. And um, I think what we have to do, though, is because because we simply won't have the space on labor units if we're going to have to figure out other strategies to get women into labor earlier. And so this could be earlier cervical sweeping, um, that sort of thing. Because actually, one of, the thi one of the problems is that obese women, we talked about earlier, are less likely to go into labor spontaneously. Mm -hmm. And so with that changing population over the last couple of decades, not just in the States, but in a lot of developed countries, we're going to have only more women who reach 40 and 41 and, and beyond. And so how we're going to accommodate all these women, it makes me very anxious. Yeah, the resource implications are huge, aren't they? Yeah, agreed. So you talked about, uh, we've talked a little bit about that safe prevention of the primary caesarean delivery guideline. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned in your talk, a lot of it is consensus statements and, and not um, high quality evidence base. It's, it's professional consensus. For something that is as old as mankind, the, the delivery of, of babies, we don't have a lot of great evidence for obstetrics. Um, and I'm wondering what your take is on how we improve that. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and it's funny, I give this talk to our medical students about how, why they come to our rotation and they've been on surgery and medicine and and others, and I say, you know, what proportion of the patients on your medical service were healthy? And, you know, it's zero, right? right? You come to our service, I say, what proportion of the patients you care for up on a labor and delivery unit, even at a tertiary care center, are actually healthy and normal? It's like 50%. And you go out into the community, it's like 80%, 90%, right? They don't have some medical illness, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's a weird thing that we've put in all these normal patients with no medical disorder having a normal physiologic process in the hospital, right? That's a little bit of a, mm. of a weird thing that we've done. 
Um, in that light, uh, I think we, we have an obligation to then study what we're doing to show that we're making a difference, right? And so the fact that we've, we've done so little research in the physiology, I mean, we don't really know what starts labor. Exactly. Right? I mean, it's incredible. So the basic physiology is wide open. The pathophysiology is even wider open, right? So uh, we just need to invest. And, and I think, you know, in our country, the, you know, the institute with the least amount of money is the NICHD, the National Institute for Child Health and Human Development. And actually, pregnant women aren't even listed in that title, but it's understood that that's where we get funding for pregnant women is in mm -hmm. NICHD. Um, the big ones are NIDDK, you know, diabetes and digestive disorders and kidneys and, uh, and cardiovascular. And so when you think about the impact of fetal programming and how pregnancy impacts the developing fetus, which then leads to increased risk for diabetes and cardiovascular disease, I'm hopeful that some more shunting of resources towards the study of pregnancy um, will be underway. Mm. But, you know, um, you know, this is more like a, a decades-long issue rather than something that we'll solve next year. Yeah, yeah. So the ultimate primary prevention, looking at uh, fetal programming. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So I'll, I'll come to my last uh, question now, Aaron. Thank you so much for your time today. You're a very busy man, and I appreciate you taking the time out to talk to me. Uh, and what do you consider the key issue uh, in women's health in the next five years? In women's health? Oh, all over. Wow. Um, man. So, I mean, obviously, I'm an obstetrician, so I think about birth and, and the complications related to birth. Um, so I wouldn't know that I would want to say one key thing, but I think the impact um, on perinatal morbidity and mortality from preterm birth is enormously important. And we've made such, li such little strides um, in that area. Um, Cindy uh, Farquhar today uh, told us about how there's actually been dramatic improvement in the outcomes of a preterm birth. And I said, well, that's great. That's all predominantly due to the neonatologists, right? It's, yeah, we gave them steroids, but you know, other than that, it's predominantly the neonatologists. But the prevention of preterm birth is, is one of those enormous things on the obstetric side of things. I think, um, you know, on the other side of things, I think contraception, effective, safe, ubiquitous contraception is something that solves so many issues um, that I think that that's an incredibly important on the on the maybe the gynecologic side of things. But honestly, I think the single most important thing affecting not just women's health but the but human health right now is the obesity epidemic. Mm. And what I talk about is that you know in the 20th century, smoking became ubiquitous. Right, cigarettes were provided in World War One and World War Two to all the soldiers. They came back with this habit. They got their partners to do it, um, and everybody smoked. And then all of a sudden, you know, Dolan Hill is published, and we realize that, oh my gosh, smoking's associated with, with cancer, with cardiovascular disease, with all these things. Mm -hmm. And it took us about four, three, four decades to really put together a public health campaign to get rid of something that was completely unnecessary for our survival, okay? But with obesity, it's a really tough thing to solve because eating is actually important for our survival. Mm. And so how do you, you then figure out how much food and how you tolerate that? Because we're driven, you know, evolutionarily to want to eat as much as possible because we never had enough. You know, for the majority of human history, we never had enough. All of a sudden, in the last hundred years, right, the majority, like many of the countries around the globe, actually have too much food mm. right, and too much cal caloric rich food. And our ability to regulate our behavior is so challenging. So I, I, and if you think about the way obesity impacts like women's health, I mean, it's everything, right? Pregnancy, gynecology, fertility, cancer, it's across the board. And so I think that that's an incredible opportunity um, to make a difference. And I think that women are more important even than men in solving this because women in many homes drive the menus, they drive health decisions, they drive even, even uh, exercise decisions. And so leaning on women to make better choices for families, I think will have to be some, some part of the solution. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I love to talk about solutions as much as uh, I like talking about the issues. So <laughs> yeah. thank you very much for your time. Thanks for joining us on Call. Well, my pleasure. Thanks so much. That was Professor Aaron Corhey from the Oregon Health and Science University in Portland talking about the caesarean epidemic and how to address it after his plenary address at the Ranskog Annual Scientific Meeting in Auckland. Next up on COG Journal Club, and as always, you can access the references for the articles on our webpage, cog.podbean.com. 
We're also on iTunes, Conversations in Obstetrics and Gynecology. And if you'd like to email me any questions, comments or smart remarks, you can reach me at coldconversation at gmail.com. Now it's over to Ted for Journal Club. So the first Journal Club article we're looking at actually comes from Birth, everyone's favourite journal, sometimes a, a little bit controversial, but always interesting. And it's entitled, Why Do Women Request an Elective Caesarean Delivery for Non-Medical Reasons? A Systematic Review of the Qualitative Literature. Now, this has been one of the problems, I suppose, of caesarean section on demand. So in other words, is that the women who've been pilloried in the literature as being too posh to push, who just want to have a caesarean done because it's convenient, they can go and get their, you know, organise their other kids, have their nails done, go into hospital, have their baby and it's very well organised. And so there'd be many reasons put forward for why women want a caesarean section on demand, and that they obviously include a fear of childbirth, or tocophobia as it's called. There are a number of cultural factors in this, and it's interesting to see in China, that, that, that as the emerging middle class in China, that this is one of the main things that, 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 that can be um, associated with affluence, is that you can elect to have a caesarean section rather than have to go through Childbirth. So there are obviously specific factors that are, that that might be peculiar to different um, different people, and I think also it's in, that with the explosion of information with the internet, with social media, there are numbers of experiences that women might have shared about the pain of vaginal birth, how you'll be ripped and torn, and sex won't be the same, and all sorts of of, of bad outcomes will befall the woman who undergoes a vaginal birth, which has led to an increase. Um, and also, sometimes a woman having an interaction with a health professional may also cause it in the sense that um, if a woman saw a particular um, care provider who had particularly strong views about a woman who was morbidly obese or old or whatever, they might say they would, they would um, massage perhaps a woman towards her choosing to have an elective caesarean section. So that I think the, the numbers of women who do this are only small, so it's only about 3% or so of women, but the reasons behind it are complex. If we're going to, going to reduce the numbers of women who do this, well then I think what we need to do is, is to provide appropriate information about vaginal delivery. So I think we need to make sure that we provide evidence-based information, that we need to hook people up with known carers who can then support women through their pregnancy. Certainly we've done a lot of work to improve the birthing environment, to make it um, more pro-choice, more comfortable for women, and so on. I think that's, and we need to do a lot more, I think, to reduce the misinformation um, that's out there about vaginal delivery, particularly around compromise of sexual function, about you know, the, risk, the, risk, the short-term and long-term risks of vaginal prolapse, that what might happen to a woman. I think we as a society undervalue birth, that um, we, you know, we need to promote births of a bit about struggle and triumph, that um, it's about getting to that end point. And um, I think it's interesting, women who have go through a, um, a labour and vaginal birth without pain relief are often judged very poorly. So why would you want to do that? This is the 21st century. Without realising that birth itself can be quite empowering. I really like this article because it talked about those cultural factors that are about Caesar being recognised in China and... Brazil? Brazil. Was it? Yes. China and Brazil as uh, yeah, something associated with affluence and therefore desirable. And it highlighted to me that I may not always be aware of the reasons why women are presenting asking for caesarean delivery on maternal request. Uh, one of the quotes in this article from a woman was, I want a caesarean delivery because Di Su, a well-known female star in Taiwan, said that childbirth affects the tightness of the vagina. We've got to acknowledge that this is where people are getting their information from and, and find a way to put out accurate information to, to counter it. We really need to go on an assault, a la podcasting, <laughs> to try and meet women at the coalface where they're getting their information from. And we see people in clinics and we hand out flyers and, and we really need to be moving towards Facebook, Twitter, those kind of electronic mediums to engage with people and give them the information they're looking for, or at least balance the information that's out there with facts and and evidence. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's interesting that if, that if you looked at, um, there have been, in, in this article, they quote women who um, are, who put forward tocophobia or fear of labour as a, as a reason for their wanting an elective 
um, cesarean section to avoid labour, that if they, they had a group of those women who were then you know, given appropriate information, led through um, pregnancy uh, with known carers, with provision of accurate information, and by the end, only about 15% of those women still had to have an, an elective cesarean section, which was interesting. I think trust in childcare is absolutely critical. Some people know their carers. If they trust their carers, I think that it's, it's, it's likely that we can make inroads into this. One of the most interesting speakers I ever heard about this was Professor Errol Kumaran, who was um, the ex-head of Figo, and he was speaking at a, at a conference on the Gold Coast a few years ago, and he was involved in a debate, elective caesarean section, yes or no. And there was a rather strident journalist who was on, who was, um, on the pro team that she should have been allowed to, that it was her right as a woman to choose to have an elective caesarean section. And Errol, um, who's been known as the Barack Obama of obstetrics, said that, um, well, actually, it's, it's not your right. It's actually a privilege for you that you live in a well-resourced country where you have a healthcare system such that you're able to choose to have that, and which I, which I thought was an interesting take on it. It's not a right, it's actually a privilege. Yeah, well, I think we are very lucky here in Australia. And I know you know, and other developed countries that also listen to the podcast. And I know that when I see women in clinic who are choosing to have a Caesar for their first delivery and trying to tease out the issues, I'm always aware of my role is to look after this woman who I'm seeing right now, but my role is also to look after the population. And we know that caesarean delivery is a more dangerous way to have your baby. Yeah, I think that's right, and 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 if you if you looked at the downstream morbidity, you know we know that there are you know much higher incidence of abnormal placentation, higher incidence of infection, higher incidence of bleeding, and 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 so on. From a health economic perspective, it seems to be more expensive, so it's it's difficult to actually quantify um, the exact costs for each episode of healthcare. But in, but in lots of different studies, the cesarean section is either double or triple the cost of a of a straightforward vaginal birth. So given we've got limited healthcare dollars and that the squeeze on healthcare dollars is only going to become more extreme, um, again, I think we've, we've, we've got to be careful. And interestingly, once a woman has a caesarean section, it's very likely that she'll have a, another caesarean section. You know, we look at, at VBAC rates, vaginal birth after caesarean rates in developed countries, they're, they're well below 20%. Obviously, variety of reasons why there's low VBAC rates, but women will choose to have only a small number of children, and only have one or two. Um, but if, and if they do, then they're very likely just to have a repeat elective season. So take-home practice point. The take-home practice point is I do think we need to, most importantly, listen to the woman who's sitting in front of us. And I think that if a woman expresses a desire to have a caesarean section on demand, I think we have to acknowledge her wish. But it's incumbent on us, I think, as health professionals, to explore a little bit why she might want to do that and to look at, at how is it possible to reverse that decision. And that's not in any way meant to take away a woman's autonomy. Rather, it's to look, look at the reasons why somebody would choose to have, you know, what, let's face it, is a major abdominal surgical procedure for, you know, what possible gain. And to give the woman time to make an informed decision. This is a systematic review of the qualitative literature, looking at reasons why women request cesarean section. Considerations include cultural factors and social norms, fear of pain and the loss of control in labour, loss of sexual function postpartum, and birth trauma associated with a previous birth. Identification of women early in pregnancy and provision of information can impact decision making when women are requesting caesarean section without medical indication. The second article on Journal Club is entitled Perinatal and Maternal Morbidity and Mortality Among Term Singletons Following Mid-Cavity Operative Vaginal Delivery Versus Caesarean Delivery. The authors are G. Maraca and a number of co-authors. Uh, and it was published in the British Journal of ONG in August of this year. So this is a population-based retrospective cohort study using data from several centres in British Columbia in Canada between 2004 and 2014. And it looks at delivery in the second stage of labour, stratified by indication. So the data was collected from the province's perinatal data registry, uh, and they did use an intention to treat framework, which is important, so that both successful and failed forceps or successful and failed 
uh, vacuum deliveries were included in the attempted mid-cavity instrumental uh, category. The use of sequential instruments were defined in a similar manner. They had nearly 11,000 deliveries with about half indicated for dystocia and about half indicated for fetal distress. Uh, And all deliveries were defined as mid-cavity deliveries where the fetal skull was somewhere between uh, zero and plus two below the ischial spines. So they looked at perinatal outcomes using a composite score of things like convulsions, severe birth trauma and perinatal death. And they also looked at composite maternal outcomes uh, like severe postpartum hemorrhage, shock, sepsis and cardiac complications. And Ted, I wanted to discuss this article with you today because I know you are a great advocate for uh, appropriate training and use of forceps. But interestingly, this article found that there was an increased risk for both the mother and the baby when any instrument was used in a mid-cavity delivery. Not surprisingly, the maternal trauma was worse with a forceps delivery and the neonatal trauma was worse with a vacuum delivery. The trauma was worse across the board when sequential instruments were used. And so when they compared women who went straight to caesarean section against women who had a a Vontus or forceps applied, across the board they showed that for mother and baby, the outcomes were better if the woman had a caesarean section without the use of an instrument. So I think we know that trying to decide if we have to deliver a baby from you know, mid-cavity or low mid-cavity, these are some of the most difficult decisions you'll have to make as an obstetrician. And I think everyone struggles with it for a number of reasons. You need to consider you know, potential size of the baby, and clearly that's a flawed assessment often. We need to look at the mother's progress in labour. We need to look at how quickly she's, she's gone through first stage. And we need to, need to look at how second stages evolve. We need to make an assessment about the amount of cavity moulding. We need to try and make some assessment about the adequacy of the contractions. Is it reasonable to intervene when we're making the assessment? Can we wait a little bit longer? You know, what are the imperatives? And I think these are really complicated decisions that we have to make often with not great information. We've got to make them in the middle of the night. Sometimes we, we haven't had any opportunity to meet with the woman or discuss you know, her potential fears or whatever. So for a whole lot of reasons, they're complicated. I've been struck over the years by the morbidity that arises with to mothers from seizures at full dilatation. And I'm actually surprised in this study, one of the big surprises for me in this was that was the lack of serious morbidity that was associated with seizure at full dilatation because you know, certainly in my career as an obstetrician, I've been struck by the uh, numbers of times that I've had to come in and assist and help registrars when they've got into trouble in, with seizures um, at full dilatation. And I've also been struck sometimes by how easy mid-cavity deliveries can be. Um, babies that just you know, come out with very little effort on my part with using um, some sort of instrument. I'm certainly not surprised by the outcomes with use of sequential instruments, but I'm also struck by the less morbidity that seems to be associated with forceps delivery for both the mother and the baby um, when compared with the vacuum extractor, which is often contrary to what we think and are taught. I was interested that this analysis included babies up to plus two station because generally... I would be nervous about a delivery from the spines or plus one, mm. but from plus two, I'd be feeling fairly confident, particularly if it moved when, with pushing, mm. that it was coming mm. out. So it was very interesting for me to see that, you know, up to that station, babies and mothers appeared better off if a cesarean was done from the outset. And that also suggests to me that if we just looked at uh, the group where it's at spines or plus one, then probably the rates of morbidity are going to be higher in that group because the baby's coming down from from a higher station Mm. because the deliveries from plus two tend to be the easier yeah i I agree the deliveries from plus two are usually easier and also the difficulty with this 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 sort of information is it's so heterogeneous in that you can the thing you can't control for is somebody's individual skill level or their ability to make a considered clinical judgment and um, I think it's interesting when Steve Robson a few years ago published in Anne's job about the morbidity associated with different instruments. He looked at vacuum, Neville Barnes forceps and Keelan's forceps and that was on a cohort of women that delivered in Canberra. 
And it was interesting that the Keelan's forceps had the lowest morbidity rate of, of the three methods of operative vaginal birth. Because they were only done by skilled only operators. Done by, mm. Only done by consultants. But Ted, how do you move through that learning curve? That's right. So it's, it's, I think you, it's when you look at skilled senior consultants using the instruments, no doubt there will be less trauma mm. to the mother and the baby. But you won't be working forever. No, but I think I think it's about, you know, it's like training anybody in anything. So it's about firstly having a sound knowledge and understanding of the procedure that you're trying to do. You can demonstrate it and perform it in simulation such that you can get an idea of how it feels, how it looks, how it's going to go. Then you need to clearly need to be mentored through many cases. And there'll be some people who'll have the dexterity and trainability who will pick it up quickly. And there'll be some people who never develop that. And that's okay. I think it's all like evidence-based medicine. You know, we, we shouldn't forget that the three strands of evidence-based medicine are, you know, the evidence plus your, you know, clinical skill and judgment plus what the patient wants. And that where those three circles intersect, that's what we should be trying to do. So to now, say cesarean women. delivery for all mid-cavity yeah. deliveries would be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Well, that's right. I would say, you know, bollocks for that. I, <laughs> don't think that we should do that. And I, 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 I do think too that there'll, there'll be some people who won't want that. Who'll, there'll be some women who'll say, Doctor, can't you, please can't you have a go at delivering my baby vaginally? I don't want to have a Caesar for so many reasons. These are really complicated, difficult areas of practice. And I do think we're kidding ourselves if we think that if we abandon um, all forceps for, for, or you know, all, all vacuums from plus two, will add to the cesarean section rate, which we've already considered has you know, you know, to be a problem. Plus, what happens if the theatres fall? Or what happens if we, 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 can't have, we don't have immediate recourse to cesarean section? We know that I can just, oh, I think I can deliver that baby fairly quickly, and I probably can safely. You know, should I do that? I think so. It's, it's complicated. It's I tricky. Agree. I it's agree. It's tricky. So take home message. Uh, what is it? Basically, it shows the incidence of severe maternal and neonatal morbidity is low. And while it shows a significant increase, it increases in the case of forceps from 0.7 to uh, 1.6. That translates to how many patients? Percent. So it's 0.7% to 1.6. So it is a doubling, and it's a significant doubling, but the absolute number is low. And then I think the other important thing to realise is that this is a retrospective cohort study. So... The groups aren't the same. By comparing women who didn't have an attempt at a vaginal delivery, that by definition is a different group to women on whom a vaginal delivery was attempted because the station was determined to be too high or there are enough Mm. factors associated with the assessment that those women went straight to cesarean or perhaps physician preference if Mm. a physician's not comfortable doing that kind of delivery. So would a fairer comparison be women who have a failed instrumental and then have a Caesar compared to women who have an instrumental? Well, they're always going to do worse. I think you need a randomised control trial to look at it. And you get randomised to Caesar without attempt or attempt, which kind of takes the clinical art of... Oh, get out of it. Yeah. Because there might be ones where I've had a guy thinking, I don't want to have a go at this. Yeah. And then you're not, as a clinician, you're not going to put forceps on that just because Cause the trial tells they've me been randomised to that. Yeah, but see, is an RCT the best way to figure it out? And an RCT is really good if you want to find out if this is better than that, where, you know, this drug is better than that drug, or you've got one clinical variable. So the question is, is, there Caesar, are so many clinical variables. is Caesar better than mid-cavity instrumental? Better That's in terms question. of what? In terms of maternal and perinatal morbidity and mortality. I think it would be a really difficult trial to do, but I don't think that this trial completely answers that question. Because it's so variable. You can't control for operator skill or experience or whatever. But that's real life. You can't control for those things anyway. Large population based retrospective cohort study from Canada suggests that mid cavity or attempted mid cavity instrumental is associated with both increased maternal and neonatal morbidity when compared with caesarean section. 
This paper flags the need for further research to assess the safety of mid-cavity delivery. This was just an a interesting little article that was published in British Journal, um, British Medical Journal in 2016, in December 2016, and it's entitled Electronic Fetal Monitoring, Cerebral Palsy and Caesarean Section Assumptions versus Evidence. And it's an analysis of, of the, the benefits um, and, I suppose, harms that electronic fetal monitoring can do. And it's interesting that, that um, el when electronic fetal monitoring was, was introduced in the, in the 1970s, it was, as we, as we said at the beginning, associated with the hope that it would lead to re great reductions in rates of cerebral palsy, because there was this understanding, I suppose, at that time, that most cerebral palsy was caused by birth asphyxia, and that if we could recognise the baby that was becoming hypoxic during labour and deliver, it, deliver that baby in a timely way, we would take great strides in reducing the rates of cerebral palsy. Now, as I think probably the majority of people listening to this podcast will know that, that um, electronic fetal monitoring got high false positive rates and has not been shown to reduce cerebral palsy at all. And certainly it's been um, listed in the US by the FDA as a technology that's likely to, very likely to cause harm. The false positive rate of CTGs for predicting CP is 99.8%. Yeah, so it's very high. And even trying to include other things like ST segment depression on the fetal ECG, look, using fetal oximetry, you try to add in other technologies to try to improve it. We don't, we haven't really made any improvements in it. I suppose the trial that dominates the um, the use of electronic fetal monitoring was the Dublin trial, which was published more than twenty five years ago, and um, it was that trial was done on about thirteen thousand births. And because of the size of it, it really dominates any analysis of of the effectiveness of CDGs. But the outcome yeah, measures on. used in that study were that was the one with it was things like ph lactate yeah, yeah. and no actual long-term outcomes no of but then they re-evaluated it though they've evaluated the evaluated the, the thirteen thousand odd kids that were that were born as a result of that as an outcome of that trial that the rates of cerebral palsy in the monitored group were no different from the intermittent auscultation group but most observational studies are compatible with the conclusion that electronic fetal monitoring does reduce the risk of intrapartum or neonatal death. And interestingly, it's less expensive than one-on-one -on -one auscultation, but um, we probably should still support one-on-one -on -one maternity care, I think. I think that it's pretty clear now that most cases of cerebral palsy in babies born out or near term are not caused by birth asphyxia, but are caused by other things, such you know, congenital malformations, growth restriction, infection, inflammation, and there's a whole lot of things we, we don't yet know about it. And it's interesting that Alistair McLennan, who's Emeritus Professor in Adelaide, who's really championed this um, and getting consensus statements on, on, the, um, on the genesis of cerebral palsy, has said that around about, only about 10% can really be ascribed to intrapartum events. However, that hasn't really stopped the, the ex one of the explosion in caesarean sections. Um, that are done because of non-reassuring electronic fetal heart. So when you're monitored in labour, your relative risk of a caesarean section is 1.63. You know, they've done analysis in a cohort group in America that if, if electronic fetal monitoring had not been used in 620,000 women, 240,000 or about a quarter of a million um, would not have had caesarean delivery. The other interesting part of this article, and it was written by a paediatric neonatologist, an attorney, and an obstetric academic. And so a big part of it centres around the discussion around the use of CTGs in medico-legal cases against obstetricians when babies have a poor outcome. I think you've brought up on the mantra that the only Caesar that you'll regret is the one that you don't do. Because, you know, we know that birth injury lawsuits are, as you say, very expensive. Um, they're expensive in terms of, of um, the money spent on them. Plus, um, you know, high, set, high you know, settlements in the tens of millions of dollars, you know, difficult. 
And you know, the current medical legal approach is expensive. It's a bit, it's irrational, it's inefficient. People have said, and I tend to agree with them, that having the threat of litigation has led to a high standard of practice. But it's, it's very difficult when you can always get an expert witness to comment on a particular trace and find an abnormality in a trace which unquestionably has led to the poor perinatal outcome, where in fact that, that um, is very likely to be untrue. And look, the, the article raises another issue. Uh, in that intra-observer and even intra-observer interpretation between even experienced obstetricians is low. So if you show someone a CTG mm. uh, and then show the same person the same CTG six months later, the way they interpret it often it's will be different. different. It's a major problem. So how do, we, how do we get around this problem? Well, I think how do we get around the problem of, re- of reducing the... Caesar rate because of the threat of litigation, um, I think we need to get much better about getting consensus about the evidence. So the article says your know, major step would be a review by an impartial expert task force with a focus on a narrow question, does electronic fetal monitoring in labour reduce the risk of cerebral palsy? And then um, the second step is to, is to tackle the problem of litigation. And they talk about the testimony of expert witnesses often does not acknowledge best medical practice. And that even though the um, expert witnesses can be called, sometimes it's up to a non-scientifically trained judge to weigh up the evidence, which is difficult. So I think that monitoring is, is here. It's going to be very difficult to get rid of it. I don't think we should get rid of it because there's some evidence that it does reduce intrapartum and, and neonatal, neonatal death. And certainly, you know, we all know from every day in our practice, we deliver babies and by cesarean section who've got, um, you know, um, disordered blood gases, which are you know, likely to be associated with or can be associated with fetal brain injury and other things. So I think that it's, it's got a place, but the problem is it's um, refining and um, how we use it. How, you know, can we improve its use? Take-home practice point, Ted? My take-home practice point is CTGs aren't that good. They've got a high false positive rate of nearly 99.8%. And your relative risk of having a seizure when you're monitored is 1.63. So I'm beginning to understand my midwifery colleagues' question whenever I ask for a CTG, does she really need it? I certainly think that we need to improve our interpretation of it. I think one of the problems with CDGs is, is, is the, again, the heterogeneity of people who are looking at the traces. And I think it's interesting when you go along and look at a trace where someone says, oh, that trace is harmful, um, and go and do something about it. When you look at it, you think, no, they're not. So I, I don't think I would have done that. And I agree that there's lots of problems with interpretation. And, you know, can a machine do it better? Well, we haven't yet got the results of the big trial that Peter Brocklehurst is doing in the UK about, um, you know, computer-based assessment of, um, of CDG traces, perhaps that will be a way forward. Um, maybe that'll lead to better, in, it'll clearly show that machines are better than humans. That's certainly been shown for ECGs, so whether, whether it's been shown for CTGs, that remains to be seen. But I think at the moment, it's, it's, it's um, in our armamentarium, it's, it's got its place, but it's got its flaws, but it's currently the best of a, of a very bad lot. This analysis piece summarises the evidence for CTGs with respect to cerebral palsy. Since introduction in the 1970s, CTG monitoring has not reduced cerebral palsy rates, but has contributed to the rise in caesarean section rates significantly. The proper use and interpretation of CTGs arises in most cerebral palsy litigation claims, despite the evidence that such monitoring is irrelevant to prevention. Thanks for joining us on Cold. Uh, next month we'll be talking to Joe Black. About perinatal mental health, which is an issue across countries and across cultures. And many different facets to it, but certainly as we become much better at caring for medical conditions during pregnancy, perinatal mental health has really grown in importance as a cause of both morbidity and mortality for um, pregnant women.
Beau is a consultant perinatal psychiatrist based in the UK and she's one of two national clinical directors responsible for rolling out the national perinatal mental health strategy there. I had a good chat with Joe at the annual scientific meeting in Auckland and next month's episode will focus on perinatal mental health. So remember, if you'd like to get in contact with me, you can do so on the webpage, cog.podbean.com, or on our Facebook page, Conversations in Obstetrics and Gynecology, or send me an email, cogconversation at gmail.com. Signing off.